Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Gaia Vince will join us to discuss transcendence. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, how is it that humans have become the most successful species on the Earth? Does it have something to do with our culture? What is it about us that has made us so successful? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Ms. Gaia Vince. Ms. Vince is a noted author who has written the new book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. Ms. Vince, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hello, good to be here. It's certainly a fascinating book you've written here, uh, Transcendence, in which you explore the rise of humans and what it is about us that makes us so unique. Curious why you decided to write this book. It actually came out of my first book in a way. So, so my first book was about the Anthropocene, which is this new human age that humans have created. And while I was researching that, it occurred to me that we are the only species who's done this. There's something quite different about us. We've completely transformed the planet. And it made me think, why us? You know, what, what's so special about us? Um, if you believe, as I do, um, the science that shows that we evolved like every other creature, how come we evolved to completely transform all other life on Earth and uh, our planet itself? Um, and and what, what is it? What is the key to our incredible transcendence? How did a smart ape become a planet-dominating force? So it's, it's almost a prequel to uh, this new human age that we created. The typical story about this is just that we are the species that evolved the biggest brains, and so therefore we won out in a way, but it's more complicated than this, you say. Yes, I don't think that it's our individual smarts. It's not just because we have the biggest brains. Uh, we don't relative to size, weirdly. There are, um, there are a couple of creatures with even bigger um, brain-to-body ratios. Um, so it's not that. What is it? Well, I think it's our collective culture. It's our collective brain. It's the way that we organize ourselves. So we evolved uh, bigger brains, but we use our brains in a different way. We use our brains to store and transmit our culture. And so uh, while we have evolved biologically, uh, through Darwinian evolution and our genes have, our genes have evolved, um, we have not speciated. So if you look at all the other species that um, inhabit our planet, if they move to a new environment, and we are global now, we really truly are global. In fact, we're, we're not even that, we're extraterrestrial, you know. We're, there, are, there are humans living on the International Space Station at the moment. So we live everywhere, and yet, we're almost the same genetically. You know, there's more genetic difference between two chimpanzees living on either side of the Congo River than there are between two humans uh, living um, in, uh, across different continents. So that's really quite extraordinary, isn't it? 
that we're so biologically similar and yet we inhabit all these different environments. And the way we do it is because we have culturally speciated. So we have this extraordinary diversity of culture and our culture works very similarly um, to the way our genes work. So over, over many generations, um, our genetic heritage is copied and copied and copied and then it's selectively filtered by genetic evolution, the more successful um, genes um, are replicated at the expense of the least successful. So we get this kind of filtering over time. Well, exactly the same thing is happening with our tools, our behaviors, our cultural evolution. So over time, we copy each other, copying, copying um, among our society, but we also copy along amount generations. And this process filters out least successful options and keeps the more successful options. So um, our culture is cumulative and it evolves very much like, uh, by, like the rest of our biology. And our culture really is a part of our biology. It's, it's very much a part of us. Tool making is as, as is integral to um, humans as uh, running. It's, it's, it's part of what it means to be human. And it's this incredible, cumulative, evolving culture that has, that has led to our transcendence. So why is it that it hasn't emerged in other species? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? And part of that is due to brain size. So it's a feedback mechanism. As our brains grew big enough to host this extraordinary culture, this type of, uh, this type of cooperation, because, because um, in order to pass on the cultural traits that we uh, inherit, we have to pass them among our, among our group. It's no good just one one individual being um, extraordinary. We we have to we have to pass these traits around everyone. So it involves a lot of cooperation, and the more that happened, the more our brains grew, and so on. But there's a limit. There's a limit to how big our brains can grow because brains require a lot of energy, and really the secret to our success is the fact that we harness energy better than any other life form on Earth. So it's a, it's a weird feedback loop that the better we became at harnessing energy, the better our brains could grow. And, and really, it all began with cooking. So, so once we were able to feed our brains in a much more efficient, energy efficient way, achieve these calories in a much better way, which cooking enables us to do, it's a much more efficient way of getting, cult, of getting calories. It meant that our brains could grow, our brains could grow bigger. And that, that, of course, meant that we, we had to be more cooperative. We had to rely more on our group because the problem with big brains is they're much harder to give birth to. And as a mother who's given birth, believe me, it's not a walk in the park. So we really are at the limit of what we can manage brain size-wise giving birth. But even with this huge brain that we individually have, actually are predicated on this social, this social brain and the collective group brain. So when we think and when we try and solve problems, we're not relying ourselves on our IQ or um, our, our individual genius at all. What we're relying on is the culture of our group. There's pretty much nothing that I to do autonomously without relying. You know, I'm sitting at the moment at a desk where I didn't make the desk, I didn't, I didn't harvest the food, I didn't plant the food, 
I barely cooked it. It had already been part cooked in a tin before I even uh, got it. You know, um, everything, everything I say, my language has been taught to me by my community. There's very little I have innovated myself. But because I can rely on this group, I'm expending actually very little energy in my life to get anything done. And that's the secret. So our brain has to do a lot of work and and every animal, every higher animal that that relies on a brain for any sort of culture at all, that takes up an awful lot of calories. You know, in our our brain takes 20% of of our total calorie consumption just to run. So, so that's already a huge amount. But if for every single activity we did and if for every behavior we made and every thought process, we, we had to rely on our own brain, well, that would be impossible because however clever you think you are, you're not clever enough to do that. We, we actually outsource the energy to our group, which means that we have to be incredibly social. We have to cooperate to an incredible extent in order to have this pool of circulated knowledge and this, the energy of the collective group, just as we rely on outsourcing our physical energy. You know, if I want to open a can of beans, I rely on a tin opener. So I'm using a tool. I'm not using my teeth. I'm not using my claws to do that. We use our culture and we use our collective culture to do pretty much everything. And that gives us this huge energy advantage over every other species. And we kind of, we've kind of reached almost a tipping point as a global species, as humanity, because there are now so many of us interconnected in these very highly functioning civilized societies, industrial societies, that really we control energy to such an extreme extent that I can now do almost anything I want just by moving a couple of digits of my finger on my phone, on my smartphone. And that's, that is an enormous leap if you compare us to a chimpanzee, you know, our closest living relative. Through all these advances, essentially, we've mitigated basic survival aspects of living, and now we can focus on more transcendent problems, as it were. Yeah, exactly. So that really is our secret trick. We're so hyper-connected now across communities that our collective brain is so big and so efficient and also our, our, our physicality is so big. You know, we, we survive now and we rely on this completely artificial ecosystem that we developed for our survival and for our comfort, which is really safe. We don't run into animals that are about to attack us and eat us. We don't have many hazards in our lives. The hazards we have or encounter are generally the ones we've created, like motor cars and things like that, you know, getting run over by that sort of thing or diseases that we give ourselves through bad eating or something. We've really revolutionized how we live as a wild animal. That's made us much more efficient, but it's it's also now made us quite vulnerable because what we've done is we've completely changed transformed ourselves but we've also transformed the planet on which we depend so this is why we're now facing these these huge um, crises in with biodiversity loss climate change so on because we've not just transformed ourselves we've transformed the world we live in and um, although up till now we've been incredibly successful at surviving evolution environmental problems whether or not we can continue to do that is a big question and it means completely rethinking how we live as this giant society, this population of um, heading towards perhaps 9, 10 billion people in a resource-depleted world with this 
much more hostile climate. It's putting us at a crossroads. And I, and I would say that, that we are really, the way, the way we act, the way we move around is not as individuals. We create these enormous planetary problems now as a superorganism. We are living very much as a superorganism. So individually, we have very little agency in these very big issues like climate change, like um, ocean acidification, things like that. And how that plays out, I think, will be really, really interesting. And we'll find out in the next few decades. Since our cultures are so interconnected, a little bit tenuously so, that could kind of all come crashing down if rather easily. Where does it look like humanity is heading in terms of survival as this new hyperconnected superorganism? Well, I mean, I am an optimist. Even though we are behaving as a superorganism, we do we do still have we do still have some agency. You know, we can flip. If you if you think of it as massive school of fish or, or you know, a swarm of bees, a couple of individuals can completely turn the tide, on, can t- flip the direction, how it's going. And, and that, that is still possible. You know, we can still move things in a different direction. And, and things, are, things are happening differently. Because, and again, it comes down, a lot of it comes down to energy. Everything we do, our, our entire evolution, in fact, the evolution perhaps of all life, comes down to how we transmit energy, how we change energy forms. And we are changing the way we access energy at a pretty rapid rate, perhaps not fast enough, but, but you know, things are changing. So I'm optimistic that we do still, we do face a lot of problems that are inherent. They, they kind of come out of the way that we evolved. This, for example, we evolved with tribalism. Part of what makes us stick together so well and cooperate so well among these big groups, unrelated individuals. You know, most species that come in tribes or or in herds or behave cooperatively, they're actually cooperating with their relatives. We cooperate with complete strangers and we we can only do that by really identifying and saying to each other, in various different ways with with various different signs and symbols that we are effectively brothers and sisters we are effectively a tribe um, that is related we're pseudo related and so we become more and more extreme with that and to to show how related we are the best way of doing that is to identify the non-related people other people and the more we other people the more we, identi- we, we, we reinforce the fact that we are part of our tribe. So we get these tribalism, we see that everywhere across the world. But also inherent in our evolutionary process has been this need to cooperate between tribes. And we do that incredibly well. And that's because we need to trade in ideas, we need to trade in resources, we need to trade in genes. And we see that throughout human history. This intertribal cooperation, this intertribal relationships. There is Neanderthal DNA in in the European genome. In fact, beyond that, we are having sex with other species, let alone other tribes. So that it's this constant, it's this constant tug and pull between tribalism and between greater cooperation and recognizing our common humanity. And I think what needs to happen as we try and deal with these enormous problems we face is more of the recognition of our common humanity and more of the cooperation and less of the tribalism because we're of a size now and we're talking about such enormous inequalities between different elements of this superorganism 
that if we don't address that, we really risk, well, collapsing in. That way leads to misery, as we've seen many, many times in our human history. Certainly now is, is increasing tribalism. Do you see the pendulum swinging the other way? I mean, I think it's quite interesting what's come out of recent research in population genetics, which really shows that we are such a mishmash. We are so mixed up and that trying to identify as different biological races is just um, is ludicrous. It's not backed up by science at all. There are no different races of people. There are culturally different races of people, perhaps, if we can if we consider different the, the enormous diversity of cultures that exist as different races. But biologically, it's it's completely nonsense. We are so intermixed genetically and throughout our history we have migrated and moved and um, interbred with each other in so many different ways that we can't tell by looking at somebody what their ancestry is and we are closely related within recent generations with most people on earth. So I think that's actually quite a useful thing for people who feel that they naturally belong to a certain tribe. We don't naturally belong to anything, but we grow up immersed in our own cultural developing bath. And that cultural developing bath sets our perspective. It tells us how to react to what we see and how to perceive things and how to respond. So it's that which decides what we think of as natural or or normal in a person. It's, It's our cultural developing bath that decides whether, for example, men should have more rights than women or whether women should wear different clothes to a man or all sorts of different things, whether we should eat with a knife and fork or whether it's disgusting to eat with hands or whatever whatever our biases come that that occur in our heads that we think of as completely natural and and completely wrong, they're all invented. Because the whole point of being human is that there is no natural way to be a human. There is no right way or a wrong way because we make it all up. And that's what we have. Unlike other species, we don't have an instinctive right way of doing anything. Our whole behaviours, our tools, our art, our taste in art or music or um, behaviour or food or anything is all learned and passed down and it's part of our culture and some of these are most of them are are successful some some are not but they are passed down and in terms of who we are as a person this this the the biological basis of every human is we're, we're, we're practically identical across the globe so so it's all cultural and we can learn just as we learn a new language we can learn a new way of looking at anything and I think that gives us a clue to how our common humanity might progress to understand that there are different ways of doing things and to try with our tribalism to make sure that we bring other people along with our visions for how we think the world should be. Because again, it's all made up. So there is no right way of doing anything. So what our values are, the only way to do it is by being as inclusive as possible, by aligning our values with the values of the people we want to bring in and persuade to join our tribe. We were just talking with Ms. Gaia Vince. She is the author of the new book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. And Ms. Vince, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's been such a pleasure. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thank you.